Well, good morning again, beloved. So good to see everyone here this morning, and thank you all for joining us online as we gather together as God's people. And that's a tremendous thing, that we get to gather together as God's people, as the ones he, he has loved. You can praise him. Go ahead. I'm tired of y'all sitting on y'all hands. Clap. Do something. <laughs> Come on. You can praise him. You can praise him. I'm going to need that same Super Bowl energy right here Sunday morning, all right? I'm going to keep that same energy. But it's a marvelous thing that we get to be God's people. Once we were no people, the Bible says. Once we were very different kinds of people. But God in his kindness through his son has made us his people. Mm-hmm. Called us by his name. Mm-hmm. Put us a place in his kingdom. Given us all of his promises. In Christ Jesus the Lord. It's an amazing thing to be God's people. I pray that we are captivated with that. Well, if you're visiting with us this morning, we are in Sermon 2 of a four-part series, which we have called Pastors and People. We began it last week with the consideration of 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 24. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 24, the Apostle Paul writes to the church there and says this, We work together with you for your joy, for you stand firm in the faith. And when he says that, he's kind of defining you know that something central to the relationship between himself as an apostle and the Christian for him. And, and by way of example or template, he's defining for us something central in the relationship between pastors and people. That there is a working together for joy, for spiritual joy, for that unique joy that comes from knowing Jesus and being yeah. Jesus. But he makes it an explicit aim that as Christian people, that as pastors working together with church members, right. working to serve our community, we're not just working to do evangelism. We're not just working to do a hundred other things that are really important. We are working for joy, beloved, is a legitimate goal of the Christian life. God means it to be so. And that's at the heart of this relationship called pastors and people. Now I said that's what we considered last week, but, but last week kind of prompts another question for us that, again, helps us to get at the heart of this relationship. What does Paul mean when he says working together? What's the strategy there? What does that look like? What does this partnership sort of entail? What are, what are the pastors to do and what are the people to do in this partnership in seeking joy? That's what I want us to come to this morning. And to do that, we're going to sort of look at a couple of passages that really all speak to the same theme, that all deliver the same message. And as we come to these passages, I want us to remember uh, at least my burden for this series, and I, I hope it's your burden too. And that is, as we sort of come back to meeting together as a church, begin to gather together in person, begin to, we pray, resume something of a regular rhythm of the Christian life, that we have our hearts and our minds reoriented to the Bible and reoriented to what the Bible says is the nature of the church and the nature of the pastor-people relationship. And to put it the other way, I'm convinced that these last couple of years, um, the pandemic and all that's happened in that, that many people have, have really lost sight of 
what's central. Have, have even began to think that the church is optional. And, and I ain't mad because if you spend two years watching church online, at, it, one of the things that at least happens is you get the subtle impression that going there was optional. But that's not true, beloved. There's something profound and spiritual and necessary that happens in the gathering of God's people. And that's why he commands it. That's why he instructs it. That's why it's the normal pattern of the New Testament. And that's why as we come back together, I think it's important that we sort of strip off the barnacles of these last two years and, and remove the, the cobweb thinking and maybe get a clearer picture again of what it is we really are and what it is we are really to do and how this relationship works, this thing we call church, in particular, the relationship between pastors and people. And so our overarching question this morning is what does this partnership look like? What does it entail? What is its main strategy? And I'm going to ask two questions and try to answer two questions for us. Um, number one, how does the, the pastor-people relationship work when it comes to shepherding? How is this thing supposed to work? And then in what areas of our lives should this relationship touch? What areas of our lives should the pastor-people relationship touch and affect and inform. That's our agenda for this morning. Y'all ready? All right. So let's take that first question. How does a pastor-people relationship work? What's its central strategy? I'm going to give you the answer. And I'm going to show it to you in two passages in the text, in the Bible. It works by setting an example of following Jesus. It works by setting an example of following Jesus. That's at the heart now of the pastor-people relationship. That's at the heart of our working together for joy, is that there's a, a, a Jesus-centered, example-setting relationship that's going on between pastors and people. Let me show that to you in two passages of Scripture. Number one, 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 2 and 3. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 2 and 3. There the word of God says, shepherd the flock of God. Well, Peter is addressing the elders of the church there. He says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, not being forced to, but willingly as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples, that it is, being examples to the flock. So notice what Peter is doing here. He gives a, a basic instruction, a basic command, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Then he gives us three pairs of sort of contrast, a not and a how, right? So the first one he says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. How, Peter? Not under compulsion, but willingly. So there he's speaking to the will. It's a positive desire. Then he says this, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. So now he's talking about motive. So there's a willfulness and there's a pure motive, then we come to what I want us to see, not domineering over those in your charge, which we talked a little bit about last week, but being examples to the flock. There's the strategy. We shepherd by being examples. We shepherd, yes, through the ministry of the word and other things, but here we shepherd 
by being examples. Let me give you this to you in another passage of scripture, which will be familiar to, to most of you. First Corinthians chapter 11, verse one. Now we're talking about the apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul says there very simply to the Corinthians, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Well, some of you who learned your Bibles in the King James, follow me as I follow Christ. And some of you who got fancy and bought NIVs, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. There it is. At the heart of the pastor-people relationship is this. Pastors set an example of following Jesus, and people imitate or follow that example wherever it is correct. There ought to be a chain or a relay of following that defines the relationship. Well, why follow Jesus? Maybe you're here this morning and that's a question that you're asking. Maybe you're thinking, here's a guy who lived 2,000 years ago. He's dead and gone. Why read this ancient book and why follow this guy? What's the big deal? <laughs> well, he's Jesus. He's the son of God. He is God the son. He's a perfect man, the only perfect man. He lived without sin. Never made an error, never made a mistake, never made a misjudgment of thought, never spoke harshly or wrongly to someone, never lifted his hand in any way other than love. Entirely perfect. Entirely holy. And guess what? He loved you and I before we even knew ourselves. Before we were even born. The Bible says that Jesus, in love for us, died for us, died for our sins. All the wrongs we have done, all the faults we're guilty of, all the wickedness that's ever entered our, our thoughts and our hearts, all of that, Jesus took it and died for it on the cross. And on the cross, he suffered the punishment of God that we deserve. That punishment was death. That punishment was God's anger against our sin. He suffered it all, drank it to the last drop. And three days later, he was raised from the grave in glory, proving that God accepted his sacrifice on our behalf, in our place, and proving that there is life after death, and proving that that life is glorious and is to be desired. And God now calls every person everywhere to repent of their sins, that is to turn away from them, and they put their faith in Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior, as their God, and to follow him. And here's the remarkable news, that the end of following Jesus isn't death, but life. In fact, that life is eternal. And that eternal life begins the moment that you put your faith in him. And, and the moment you put your faith in him, everything that Jesus is, everything that Jesus has done becomes yours through faith in him. All of his righteousness becomes your righteousness to replace our unrighteousness. And, and all of his holiness becomes your holiness through faith to cover our sins and transgressions. All of his strength and power becomes ours too. The Bible says the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in us who believe. 
All of his hope, all of his glory, all of it becomes ours through faith in him. And so this morning, beloved, we would call you to follow Jesus too. We, we would call you, as God does, to put your faith in him, to put your hope in him, that through him you would escape judgment and wrath and live forever, and in him you would receive all of God's promises. And you would trust that and believe that and so follow Jesus as your Lord. And we guarantee you it will sometimes be hard, but it will always be worth it. So if you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, we pray that you would become one by repenting of your sins, putting your faith in this Jesus, and following him. Because following him is what it means to be a Christian. Sometimes the Bible uses ordinary words. In fact, it always uses ordinary words. It, in the Greek language in which it was written, is written in the common Greek, the everyday uh, town people kind of Greek. And so it's translated into English, and its English words appear very common to us. And, and sometimes in the familiarity of terms, we, we don't quite see the depth that's being communicated there. Take that word follow, for example. Follow me as I follow Christ. Follow is one of the most important words in biblical Christianity. Think about it with me. When Jesus called his first disciples, how did he call them? The two words, follow me. Follow me. Thus began the Christian movement. And Jesus really defined his lordship and his discipleship as following him. He, he, he asked this question in Luke chapter 6, verse 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord? and do not do what I tell you. In other words, for him to be Lord means to follow what he tells you, to do what he tells you. And Jesus even taught the disciples that they showed their love for him by following or obeying him. John 14, 21, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And throughout the book of Acts, I wonder if you've noticed this. What we now call Christianity was originally called the way, the way. And the people who were part of this sect, this Jewish sect, they were called followers of the way. I mean, followers was literally our original name. We were followers of the way, following Jesus as Messiah. So following Jesus is how people became disciples, how Jesus' lordship was seen, how people showed their love for him. It was our first moniker, our first name. And so it's not surprising then that when it comes to the pastor-people relationship, it, it makes sense that, that setting an example of following Jesus should be at the heart of the relationship. It should be at the heart of the relationship. It's simple, but it's genius. It's genius. The more I thought about this this week, the more profound this strategy became to me. Again, you know, sometimes the Bible is so simple and so clear and concepts sound so ordinary that we can miss how deep it is, right? So we talk about following someone, maybe our mind runs off to mentoring programs or things of that sort, but it's deeper than that. Let me meditate on four quick things that demonstrate how profound this strategy is in our relationship. Four things that this strategy clarifies for us. Number one, 
This strategy makes it clear that pastors themselves are followers. That pastors themselves are followers. And beloved, I, I, you, you may or may not know this, but that's regularly forgotten. As too many pastors become chieftains over their little kingdoms. And, and churches become not churches, but personality cults. As pastors are looked to to have all the answers for all the things. And, and yet, the truth is, I put my pants on just like you do, one leg at a time. I mean, I've seen some videos of sisters kind of doing this. I don't do that. <laughs> Help me, Lord. <laughs> but pastors are followers, just like everybody else. My job description, Dennis's job description, Tunde and Tim's job description says, reports to Jesus. It's clear. It clarifies it for us. Number two, though, it clarifies how the people should evaluate their pastors, doesn't it? Your evaluation of your pastors, whether you're members of this church or visiting with us from other churches or looking for a church, your evaluation of your pastors must answer one basic question to begin with. Is the pastor following Jesus or someone else? Is the pastor following Jesus or something else? Follow that pastor if he is following Jesus. That's what the Bible says. Fire that pastor if he's following something else. It's just real clear. And this strategy makes it clear how we are to preserve the unity of the church. How are we to preserve the unity of the church? Unity comes by everybody following Jesus. Pastors get everyone moving in the same direction that Jesus is moving in. And I love it. Some of y'all have been maybe going off to a, a party, maybe the Super Bowl party tonight or some other thing with some people, and you weren't driving. You were somebody else, and, and they got ready to go, but you weren't ready to go. Y'all know how that go? And they done told you about three times, look, man, I'm ready to go. And you're like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. And sooner or later, the cat with the keys said, everybody going with me better come on. And then they get unity real quick, don't they? And this is what it is in the church. One of my mentors in the ministry, I, when I was on staff with him, I couldn't understand there'd be sort of beefing with staff and bickering and conflict, and, and he would rarely get involved in it. And I was the chair of the elders, and I used to sort of go to him and say, look, brother, you need to mediate this conflict and get involved in this. And he was like, no. He's like, no. I said, what do you mean, no? He was like, no. He said, I figured like this. I'm going to follow Jesus, and everybody going with Jesus need to come with me. And it wasn't until I had my first senior pastor and had my own staff and started seeing sort of little conflicts and little petty things going up around staff that I looked up one day and I heard myself saying the same thing. I, I'm going to follow Jesus. Everybody going with Jesus better come with me. Because you can get down in the weeds of everybody. He said, she said, da da da, da. Next thing you know, everybody's lost sight of Jesus. So this strategy of setting a Jesus-centered a Jesus -centered example of following him creates unity as people line up. Let me give you a fourth thing it clarifies. That this Jesus-following example setting, it begins to clarify who's really converted or not. See, when you start to follow Jesus, people who ain't about that life start to go different directions. You see that at the end of John chapter 6, for example. 
And when a church makes up its mind to follow the Lord pretty soon, you can distinguish the followers from the fakers. Because the fakers seem never to have enough will to do what Jesus said. They seem to always have some justification, some rationale, some way of, of dulling the sharp points of the scripture. Until basically you're talking about Jesus, but you ain't following Jesus. And so following Jesus and having a church culture and having a relationship between pastors and people where at the center of the relationship is this explicit strategy of following him and y'all following leaders, that clarifies things. It makes it real simple. And this is important because, beloved, sometimes the pastor-people relationship goes wrong. And usually when it goes wrong, some confusion has replaced clarity. Some confusion about the nature of the relationship and what's supposed to be going on has crept in, replaced clarity, and that's where the conflict and the hurt and the disappointment comes from. So this is genius. It's genius because it's clarifying, but it's genius also because it helps us again know what the relationship is not built on. Let me give you one thing it's not built on. And I say this, I want to say this with some carefulness. That the relationship between pastor and people is not primarily built on friendship. It's not primarily built on friendship. It's a great blessing when pastors and their people have friendships, have genuine friendships that develop. I count many in this congregation. That's not always been the case for me. My first pastor, first five years, I was lonely. Lonely. It was hard. So I counted a great blessing, but I don't want us to be mistaken that friendship is at the center of the pastor-people relationship. Now, I wasn't alone when it was hard for me. I just read last night a bit of research from Lifeway that found in a survey of about 1,000 pastors that 70%, 70%, seven out of 10 pastors say that building friendships, note, of any kind is a struggle. Seven out of 10 saying building friendships of any kind is a struggle. I'll tell you in a minute. <laughs> I feel my help coming. <laughs> right after that, right after that, I read another study from the Barner Group. And the Barner Group found this. They surveyed Christians, and they found that 50% of Christians des described their pastors as their friends. Now, something going on between those two numbers. If half y'all think you're friends with the pastors and seven out of ten pastors like, man, I can't make any kind of friendship, something ain't clicking. Something ain't right. Something ain't where it's supposed to be. And, and if friendship is to be at the heart of the pastor-people relationship, then these statistics, whether 50% think they have friends or not, these statistics tell us that churches are failing all over the place. If friendship is the aim, but here's the truth, beloved. Trying to turn the pastor-people relationship into friendship generally doesn't work for pastors or people. Generally doesn't work, and it doesn't work because it's not God's primary design. Healthy pastors recognize 
that their people need a pastor more than they need a friend. And good pastors know their people actually have more opportunities for friendships than they have for shepherding. So if you're going to choose between shepherding or friendship, if you're a pastor and you're a good pastor, then you're going to choose shepherding and trust friendships to be found in the body and beyond. Because shepherds do something very important that friends don't. Shepherds watch over your soul as men who must give an account to God. You don't want to fire a shepherd in favor of a friend. You have to choose. You want a faithful shepherd. But a lot of people, again, seem to want to substitute friendship for example setting in Jesus' following. So two things further must be said about friendship when it comes to pastors and people in our relationship. Number one, most people, just to make it clear, most people will not have close friendships with their pastors. Just won't. Let me illustrate that in Jesus' life. Jesus had the 12, who were also called apostles. Those were his boys. Those were the ones who mainly traveled with him. But even among those 12, he had three that he was very close with. Peter, James, and John. They got to see him in the transfiguration. They got to be with him in all these momentous moments. So if the perfect son of God really had capacity for 12 friendships and three close ones, and the imperfect pastors don't even have that kind of capacity, is it reasonable to think that your pastors are going to be friends with everybody in the church? It's not, is it? It's not even an example that the Lord has left us. And if the Lord didn't entrust himself to all his disciples, but again, the 12 friends, then it, it, it's commonplace for pastors to be a bit more selective. And people, I want to encourage you to be a bit more selective about their friendships. Limited people can only have limited friendships. Christians must learn to not take that personally and learn not to think of that as some kind of defect in their church and in their relationship to the church. It's simply a natural reality. We all have limits to the number of friends that we can have. And plus, friendship is not the central factor to this relationship. Jesus following example setting is. One, one other thing about friendship and why you don't want it in the middle of the pastor-people relationship. Sometimes friendship gets in the way of shepherding. This happens especially when the hard requirements of discipleship and accountability come up. When friendship becomes the basis of the pastor-people relationship, then we tend to replace accountability with confidentiality. We replace biblical authority with the authority of our opinions. We ignore the covenant that we make with the church in favor of the covenant that we have made with our friends. And that makes shepherding really messy. And it makes it really difficult to separate the, the friendship expectations from the pastoral responsibility, from Christian expectations. And, and beloved, this is partly why so many sheep feel hurt or mistreated by pastors whenever the pastor must act as a pastor rather than a friend. They were going along thinking, we're just friends. And then they tripped. And then the pastor had to treat them like a pastor. 
And they was like, I thought you was my friend. Well, I am the best kind of friend you have. The one who keeps watch over your soul. And so we want to be clear about these things. Because not being clear leads to hurt. Now keep in mind, a pastor always has his pastor hat on. I appreciate y'all invitations to parties and get-togethers and all that good stuff. And once every blue moon, I can make it out. But y'all don't let me just come out and beat the beady, right? Sooner or later, one of y'all be like, hey, pastor, can I talk to you, right? And we just went from singing happy birthday to little Timmy on his second birthday to having a counseling session over in the corner, right? Right? Y'all sometimes try to have it both ways. You know, you're my friend until I call you pastor. You know, pastor, you know? And it's cool. I'm glad to be a pastor. I, I know I can't take that hat off, right? And so I don't want us to be unclear about that. Always have the hat on. Dennis always has the hat on. Tim and Babatuni always have the hat on, even though we're being friendly or in friendship context. Even if we're actually friends, we're still your pastors, right? And that clarity helps us. That's how God designed the relationship. At the center of the pastor-people relationship, is this Jesus-following, example-setting partnership. Let's ask a second question. So in what areas of life does this example-setting and example-following extend? Where should pastors kind of show up to be a model? Well, the thing about that, look with me at 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12. There, Paul, writing to a young pastor, instructing him on how to pastor the church, writes this. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. So this example reaches to how we speak, how we act or live, how we love, how we trust God, and how we maintain purity in all of those areas. Pastors are meant to be models and people are meant to follow. Now, by speech, Paul has in mind wholesome and sound talk. Pastors shouldn't be double-tongued. They should not lie. They should not engage in coarse jokes. Instead, they should model, be models of speaking the truth in love, of ministering grace to the hearer, of, of praising God and of thoughtfully considering the needs of others. Praise God for James, because James tells us that no one is perfect. No one is able to perfectly bridle the tongue. So this is not perfectionism here. Pastors are always imperfect examples. But ordinarily, they are meant to be good models. And so the question that, that sheep should ask is, if I spoke the way my pastors speak, would I sound like Jesus? If I spoke the way my pastors speak, would I sound like Jesus? Or take conduct. Conduct refers, of course, to behavior. Conduct refers to a person's pattern of life. In, in the simplest terms, pastors should set an example of a righteous and holy behavior. Pastors ought to behave the way Jesus behaved. Again, imperfectly, but, but genuinely. Our lives should be models for people to imitate. And so the question becomes, if I lived the way my pastors lived, would I be following Jesus' lifestyle and behavior? 
Would I be following Jesus's lifestyle and behavior? Or all over the New Testament, Christians are called to love, aren't we? Jesus demonstrated his love toward us by dying for our sins, even while we were still sinners. And because of that, we read things like this. Greater love has no man in this than to lay down his life for his brothers. Husbands must lay down their lives for their wives. Jesus calls Christians even to love their enemies. First John says we should love not just in word, but in word and deed. And 1 Corinthians 13 tells us that without love, we are noisy nothings. Love is the greatest of all the virtues. And pastors are called to exhibit a God kind of love so people know how to follow Jesus by imitating their pastors. And so again, the question, if I love the way my pastors love, would I be following Jesus in laying down my life for others? Would I be following Jesus in laying down my life for others? We could go on. We could ask the same kinds of questions about faith and purity. Would I show the kind of faith that Jesus had in the Father if I were to copy my pastor's faith? Or would my mind, heart, and body be morally clean if I followed my pastor's example of purity? You see the point, right? There's a sense in which your pastor's are meant to make Jesus more visible and imitatable, copyable. And the question is, can we see that? Is that true? Now, this means, this implies that there has to be access to each other's life, doesn't it? You don't know that following your pastor would help you follow Jesus, unless on some level you know your pastor, have access to your pastor, can talk with your pastor, reach your pastor, spend time with him, All right? This, I think, is an argument, an important argument. I mean, praise God, he makes some churches really large, and we praise God for them, we ain't mad. But this, I think, is an argument for most Christians to be in smaller churches and have greater access, greater visibility, a greater ability to do what Hebrews 13.7 says. Hebrews 13.7 says, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. This is just over and over again, we see this pattern. And one of the best reasons to remain committed to a church family is you believe the pastors are good examples of following Jesus. And not believing that is a good reason for you to find a different church. If you're looking for a church home, you wanna look for pastors, you feel confident, are imitating the Lord and therefore confident that following them would make you just that bit more, a little bit more like the Lord himself. Now, beloved, it's hard to be this kind of pastor. It's also hard to find these kinds of pastors. And when you find them, it's hard to follow these kinds of pastors. Christianity is for the courageous. Nothing about Christianity is for the person who doesn't want to be stretched. Whether you are a pastor or people, Jesus is interested not in leaving us where we are, the way we are, but in conforming us to himself.
making us more like him today than we were yesterday and more like him tomorrow than we were today. And here's the good news. The Lord Jesus is more committed to that project in our lives than we are. He is. This is why Philippians 1 says, he who began a good work in you will carry it on until the completion on the day of Christ Jesus. The work he began in us, he's going to finish. We may come kicking and screaming, stumbling and falling. But if he started it, he's not going to leave it half done. If he started it, he's going to finish it. This is the great confidence that we have in the Lord if we are Christians. It's not a confidence in ourselves. It's not a confidence in our pastors. It's ultimately a confidence in Jesus. All of this is Jesus-centered and Jesus-trusting. Now, he's going to carry that work out in the normal things that we do as pastors and people, in the way that we model and the way that we copy. But don't forget, it's Jesus doing the work. If you are his beloved, he's at work in you. You never actually have to wonder about that. You never actually have to guess about that. You you never have to doubt whether or not the Lord Jesus is at work in your life because he has told you that the work he begun, he is going to complete. And here's the amazing thing. Sometimes the Lord most effectively completes his work in the failures and the sufferings we endure. We look at them sometimes and only see failure and only see suffering, only see setback, only see our limitations and our weaknesses. But beloved, those are the very paths that the Lord chooses to take us down to finish the work of making us more like him. He's so good that way. He's so good that way. If you're here, you're not even a Christian. This is one of the other reasons we delight to follow him. We delight to follow him because having purchased us with his own blood, he's not going to waste our lives. He's not going to leave our lives unfinished. He's going to perfect our lives, make them like his. So, beloved, I want us to be clear about what our relationship is as pastors and people. Again, grateful for all the friendships. Don't, don't hear this as, oh, you know, now the pastors are putting distance between us and them. Not, not at all. Grateful for all the friendships where we can get them and have them. They're great blessings. But I don't want us to have the wrong expectation so that we become disgruntled or dissatisfied or distressed or anything at all. If so-and-so seems to have a friendship, but I don't. Well, that was never the center of the relationship anyway. At the center of the relationship is this project of working together for your joy and my joy by following Jesus. And at the center of this project is the pastors have a responsibility to set an example and the people have a responsibility to follow that example as long as it's consistent with Jesus. We keep that clear so many things in our spiritual lives will also be clear. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that one of the blessings you've given us by pushing pause with this pandemic is the blessing to be able to sort of go back to some essentials, some basics, some ABCs. We thank you, O oh Lord, that your, your basic truths are deep truths. Truths that would feed young children who believe in you. 
and truths that would feed older saints who've walked with you for decades. And we thank you for how you, Lord, like a compass, keep reorienting us to the, to the true north of your gospel and your word. And we pray that you would keep doing that. Keep turning us back to your word and turn us back to Jesus and, and keep us on the narrow path, oh Lord. The broad way leads to destruction. The, the narrow path leads to life. Help us to stay on it. Cause us to thrive on that path. Grant us more pastors who would be um, examples to us of following Jesus and, and make us a people, Lord, a membership, sheep, who gladly follow those who follow you. And in that, Lord, keep things clear, keep things focused, keep things hopeful and joyful, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.